Well, as we jump into the passage this morning that was just read for you, you see, um, in keeping with the broader context of what's going on here in the garden prayer, is that we're really in quite an emotional roller coaster here as far as how the disciples have been doing in the last night or so. If you look back, just to understand, by the time you get down to verse 45 that was read for you, he found them sleeping for sorrow. Um, Again, the the sense of being overwhelmed with the events and how rapidly the discussion is taking shape is at, at least unnerving to the point where confusion abounds and they're feeling absolutely overwhelmed. It's been quite a discussion. You recall earlier, um, so Satan is, um, darkness is ramping up, beginning in in chapter 22, at the beginning portions, verse 3, where Satan entered Judas, right? And then in verse 6, he's looking for an opportunity. Again, this is his, what he perceives to be his opportunity to destroy Jesus of Nazareth. By the time we move to the upper room, um, at verse 14, they have the supper, verses 14 through 23. So they just were given the sacrament. The, the Lord is going to fulfill Passover. And, and then he institutes to them, to us, his people, his table, the ongoing sacramental meal, remembering that he has brought about Passover and that we are hidden in him, that we are his people, and that when we struggle in time, we look back, we taste afresh the nourishment of his table. So here they are in this discussion, seeing the bread be broken, seeing the wine be poured, sharing in it one with another, and in the presence of Christ who is their head. A meal of importance and unity in the life of the church instituted here with the disciples at the table Then the temperature in the room quickly changes. Again, our Lord announcing, but behold, 21, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on this table. The idea of betrayal introduced right here and right now. This man is going to betray me, and his hand is here at the table. Right? So quite a shift in the discussion. You can imagine being at the table and now beginning to process what are we talking about? What's about to transpire? So again, then they start looking at each other. Verse, um, verse 23, and they began to question one another. Who, who, who's going to do this? What, what, what are we talking about? How is this going to go down? Who is it? You, 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 me? It's not me. It's got to be you. This, again, this is my body. Here is my blood. Unity. Disunity. Verse 24, the dispute erupts. It moves from, it's not going to be me, to the fact, I'll tell you, I'll guarantee you it's not going to be me. I am the greatest. So it's intensifying. Then, look at verse 28. Our Lord de-escalates the entire dispute. Even when he speaks through verse 26... The greatest among you needs to become the youngest, and the leader is the one who serves. Who's greater? The one that reclines at the table or the one who serves? Isn't that the one who reclines? Well, yeah. Well, I am among you as the one who serves. Right? This perfect word of de-escalating the discussion, putting some perspective to things, 
Verse 28, he's patient and he's kind to them in a very ugly moment of verse 24 in a dispute. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And then he gives them a word of a future kingdom, something that encourages them, indeed, swells within them. I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom. These men will begin to lay the foundation of the church. And then at this wonderful encouragement, this word of promise, verse 31 then, brings yet another roller coaster to the situation. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have everybody here. That he wants to sift all of you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon. For you. Why for me? I pray that your faith will not fail you. I pray that it will not fail. And when you have turned again. In other words, it's going to be difficult for you. But you will turn again. Because not if, but when. You turn again. Strengthen your brothers. They're going to need it too. So now you think, okay, we just heard about the future kingdom, that we're going to be established well within its bounds. Yes! Encouragement. Okay, so this isn't the end of the story. What's going on here? We're, we're hearing words of promise, and now we're just hearing words of demise. Somebody's betraying him. Now we're hearing that Peter's going to lie about even knowing him. What is going on? On. And remember, this is all happening in one upper room Passover meal. This is all in the same discussion around the same table. Look at verse 33. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter. Now again, how many people are hearing this? Everybody in the room. And you recall Peter's presence among the disciples. He's a leader among leaders. And so if there was a more frail constitution among them, they're looking to Peter of steel-type resolve, very strong personality. Even a physically strong guy. Um, you see that in the other gospel where he's, he's drawing the nets ashore full of fish. He, he's, a, 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 he's a big figure in every way. And it's none other than he who will fail and deny that he even knows Jesus, who we are just right now eating the meal with. And it's pronounced in verse 34, I tell you, Peter, you, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me, or deny that you know me uh, three times. I say all that to say the men in the room, all of them, at this point when we get into our text this morning, verse 35 and following, everyone in the room is reeling. 
not sure, again, the meal of unity, a dispute. They were just kind of perhaps even shouting down one another at a point of who's better than who. And then we hear that Peter, the, the guy of the moment, is going to do this. And, and now everyone is stunned. And if that weren't enough... As they're processing this information, again, this makes sense of why he finds them in the garden asleep for sorrow. Look at verse 35, and I'm going to read 35 through 38. Remember who's listening. They're feeling, starting to feel overwhelmed. And he said to them, so, so again, Peter, you are going to deny me three times. Deny that you even know me. And he said to them, so it continues, the discussion continues. When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? Do you remember that? When I sent you out. So they're listening very attentively, right? Do you guys remember when I sent you out? This would go back, if you're looking at Luke, I don't have time to go back, but if we were to go back, this would be Luke chapter 9, where he sends them out to begin to proclaim the presence of the kingdom. He gave them power over the demons to perform miracles of healing and so forth. So he's reminding them of this. Do you remember those days? And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, I just I sent you out to proclaim the presence of the kingdom. In that trip, in that missionary endeavor, did you lack anything? And they said, no, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. Which one? This one. And he, that is me, I, was numbered among the transgressors. Our Lord continues, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. Now what's taking place in this situation here is that he is increasingly telling them about the paradigm shift of what's about to occur in their lives as a result of his own crucifixion. Before, in other words, in the first portion of that section of Scripture, the reason why they didn't lack anything is because there was a spirit of hospitality and warmth. When they went on a missionary endeavor and announced the presence and power of the kingdom, and they announced, who sent you? In whose name are you proclaiming? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. There was a sense of hospitality. 
Remember, he said, in any house that welcomes you, go in and make your dwelling there. Don't just skip out. Don't take off. Don't try to get better accommodations. If they welcome you, go in and dwell with them. Explain to them the presence and power of the kingdom. There was a hospitality experienced in that missionary endeavor. But a time is coming where hospitality will now shift to hostility. And conflict is coming, and that's the imagery of the sword. Now, again, the disciples are sitting here thinking a little bit more realistically. They're thinking more literally. And and again, as Adam mentioned earlier, we can't really bag on them or think, why didn't they get it? There's a ton of reasons why they didn't get it. And not to mention just the emotional understanding and and the mental understanding and the feeling and the weight of the moment of the discourse, the time around the table. There's a lot of reasons why. They're thinking more instinctually than perhaps theologically. So he says to them about the metaphor, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. In other words, there's not going to be handout. There's not going to be a warmth and a welcoming spirit when we leave here. And likewise, take your knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. But look at their response as I read for you verse 38. Hey, here's some swords right here. And he says, Ah, uh, no, I don't physically, literally want you to grab your swords and take off out the door. I'm trying to help you understand is I am going to be nailed to the cross. I am going to be numbered among the transgressors, me. And as a result, you will endure hardship if you're faithful. Right? He didn't say, and grab a sword if you have one, because you're going to be in big trouble. He's saying, this scripture is fulfilled in me. Me. I will be the cause where people will turn against you as you remain faithful. I will be nailed to the tree. I will be numbered among the transgressors, and you will be sought out. Hospitality is going to change in the next few days to hostility because of my death. Again, in the moment, verse 38, to then turn and think, I need to grab these swords that are here. Let's grab these. We'll start with these. And you see in his response, it's enough. It's not like, yeah, those are going to be sufficient for the onslaught battle. It's, that is enough. Because even if we look forward and you see Peter in the garden episode that we won't have time to get to this morning, but you see him. Look at, he draws a sword. Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Verse 49. And those who were around him saw, they would follow him. They said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Jesus said, no more of this. No. And just like when he spoke of the kingdom Pilate, if my kingdom was of this world, my servants would be fighting. 
You see, he is not telling them to arm themselves for physical conflict. He is explaining that as a result of his death, they will be persecuted. But to recall, no man takes my life from me. You don't need to fight for me. I'm laying it down for my sheep. Now, again, notice in the text how Jesus responds to their final discussion. He's a bit frustrated very clearly in verse 38. But again, the emotions and the weight of what is about to occur is clearly starting to weigh him down. And the disciples are still in this emotional fog, um, a lack of clarity as to about what exactly is going to happen when he says he was numbered with the transgressors. He just said, that's about me, and it has its fulfillment in me. And he seems frustrated at 38, and they're in the fog. Verse 39 through 40 is his initial response. Notice the text, and he came out and went. Came out of what? Came out of the upper room that he was with them. The, the time around table is ended. He came out and they left. And where did he go? But was as his custom, they, they left to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed after him. When he came to that place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, what the specific nature of their temptation is, I'm not exactly sure. What is this specific examination? Because if we look at the term, and you could briefly translate, I don't know if your English um, references it or puts footnotes there, maybe study Bibles do, but if you look at the, uh, the terminology of temptation, it can very uh, fairly be translated examination or trial. So, in a very real sense, he is saying to them as they leave the upper room and come into the garden area or the grove area of the olives, the Mount of Olives, as they are walking with them, he turns and he says to them, here in this Mount Olive context, and he says to them, pray, begin praying, that you, you guys, may not enter into a time of trial. Whether we know the specific nature or the exact temptation that would be upon them, if we think more broadly about ourselves in this very context and we're more honest with our own role that we would have played, were we there that night as well? I think it's fair to say that each of us would recognize that in the frailty of our own flesh, when real and significant trials come, our circumstances quickly become negotiable. That is, self-preservation becomes first and foremost. So he says to them, knowing what is about to come, knowing in the discussion that what is coming is going to have its fulfillment in me. I will be numbered with the transgressors, and what used to be a warm and hospitable welcome to you will be off the table. Times are changing, and it's going to be because of my atonement, and they'll be changing for you. 
as you move forward, pray that it is not your immediate impulse to run. That it is not your immediate impulse to hide. Perhaps for you, Peter, pray that it is not your immediate impulse to deny. And particularly here, as they're seeing the weight upon him and they're feeling the the emotional fog and the weight of the time of prayer as well, perhaps it is simply a temptation that the disciples will do anything to avoid suffering with him as the hours draw near. Pray that you might be courageously faithful. But whether we know the very nature of the specific temptation that the disciples would experience or they would be exploited by, the greater point that moves forward in the text is that it's not about the disciples. The spotlight is turning to our Lord. This is the moment in the garden. The significance of the garden scene is not that the disciples pray that they don't go into trial but that our Lord is entering into a time of trial. Pray. Pray that you don't enter into a time of temptation and trial. Because I am entering a time of temptation and trial. That's what's later in the text of agony. Later on in a few moments in his prayer, you'll see that an angel appears to strengthen him. And he's in agony. And before that, he tells them as they watch, you be vigilant in prayer that you don't endure such trial. But there's something significant that we have to note here about the entire context that is an instruction not only of what Christ has done and performed, but the instruction to us as well about following similar behavior. And that is, look very carefully at, as he enters into what is a time of testing and examination, a time of great trial and temptation, Notice the passage very carefully. I'll read 40 through 49, or sorry, 40 um, through 46. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation or a time of trial. And he withdrew from them, right, going into the time of trial. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and he prayed. Saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Now the critical piece is next. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. 
So, so don't skip over the words of cup and your will be done and the significance of what that actually is saying because it's so heavy to bear. An angel appears to be strengthening him. Do you see? It's not a simple comment. We'll explore it in just a moment. Verse 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came back to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into trial. Now, I want to draw your attention to the role of prayer in the alignment of the Son's will with the Father's. And it's a significant piece of instruction for our own sake in prayer. In other words, notice that when the divine will that the Father has put forward for the death of the Son, notice when or in what context the Son's will is perfectly aligned with the Father's. Father's will, the Son in prayer, and he says, not my will, but your will be done. You see, the timing of that is everything. This is why Jesus would bid you and I to pray during times of great trial and difficulty. Our impulse is to run. Our impulse is to turn inward. Our impulse is to talk and not be quiet, to not meditate, but to fill our space with noise. Jesus enters into trial and gives us, you and I, an example of how to persevere in great trial and sorrow and hardship. And he says explicitly, pray, pray during these times. Enter into communion during these times. Why are you sleeping? Pray as you enter into temptation. The time where our will is changed to align with the Father's is in communion and prayer. Don't just frantically talk about difficulty. Pray about it. Prayer is the place where Jesus gives us the example. Prayer is the place where faithfulness to the Heavenly Father emerges. Our will becomes submissive in the strenuousness of prayer. You see, notice very carefully once again verse 41. He knelt down and he prayed. Right? Not telling the disciples, you won't believe what's about to happen to me. I'm in agony and my impulse is to just talk nonstop to you about it. Make me feel better. 
Can I share it with you, what I'm about to endure? Can I tell you how it's going to go down? Can we chat, 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 chat? He, he leaves and he prays. And in prayer, in communion, his will is submissive to the Father. As an example for us, pray in times of great trial. It is in the context specifically of prayer where Jesus submits to the Father, not my will but yours be done. Is this not even the beginning of how we began our worship time this morning? We stood and we said together, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is that context where our will is made responsive and submissive to the work of God in our lives. Notice very carefully, we do need to settle a little bit of an issue very carefully here about the divine will, and that is what seems to be a division of divine will. Let me hopefully be helpful and careful with you as we look at the Son and the Father in the one work of redemption. Notice very carefully once again how he prays. Verse 41, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away and knelt down. And he prayed. You guys stay here and pray. Pray that you do not enter into temptation and trial. I am going into temptation and trial. What will I do? I will pray. What should we do? Pray. Now notice the language of his prayer. Saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Remove it. Take it away. I don't want to drink its bitters. I don't want it poured out on me. If you are willing, Father, so we have the Father's will and the Son here petitioning the will of the Father. If you are willing, take this cup, this situation, away from me. Take it out of the way. Nevertheless, even in this petition, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So how do we understand the harmony of the Father and the Son and the work of rescuing His people? It's important to understand in the words of Jesus that He is here and significantly to our faith. Jesus is both God and man. It is critical that we remember here is indeed Jesus of Nazareth true man and true son of God. Why is that so important to remember as he prays to the divine will about what's about to happen, that we remember that he is both God and man together, perfectly in harmony? How do we understand that he would pray, Father, remove this from me? The answer is because His prayer is actually that of the most pious prayer of all men. You see, 
as a godly man. Or as we could say, as the godly man. He doesn't want to experience what sin brings. What is it that sin brings? Once the sin is imputed to him, separation from his Holy Father. You see, it's not the physical dying on the cross that has him in agony. Sure, does anyone want to die by the hands of the Romans on a, on a wooden cross? No. But is that what here has an angel ministering to our Lord in agony? No. If it were merely death on a cross, then perhaps we'd look through church history and we'd see many saints throughout their time have in that sense died more, dare we say, almost more courageously in the times of great persecution, burning at the stake, having limbs torn, facing wild beasts in an arena. Many saints have endured death for the cause of the gospel. What has our Lord here in absolute agony where an angel is ministering to him and Luke reports that his blood is falling almost like drops of great blood? Is his agony over the separation that sin will bring between him and his Father? He will experience a sinner's death. And he will experience it for us. You see, that is why we express it in the Apostles' Creed. As we say the Apostles' Creed together at church, we mention that portion in the Creed. He descended into hell. But what does it mean that he descended, but that he suffered spiritually a sinner's death? He underwent separation on our behalf. It's not the physical cross, but the curse of sin that has our Lord in absolute agony. You recall Galatians 3.13, Paul references it this way from the Old Testament. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. The curse by becoming a curse for us. Paul says, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So in this garden scene, his time of trial and temptation is upon him. The weight of redemption is before him. He must undergo separation from the Father. And he'll undergo separation in order to bring us into union. Mark reports in Mark 14, our Lord saying it this way. As he speaks to them, he comes back. And verse 44 here with Luke, it says, and being in agony. Again, not because he's going to die at the hands of the Romans, but undergo separation. He prayed more earnestly 
and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Mark says, our Lord said, my soul is very sorrowful. Right? Think about them in, the, them in the Garden Grove, verse 45. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples. And he found them sleeping. Why? They're sleeping for sorrow. They're overwhelmed. And they will not endure the agony of separation. Our Lord, my soul is very sorrowful. Even to death. You see, far from being a division in the divine will, far from being a contentious time between the Father and the Son, get me out of here. Let me get away from this. Why would you do this to me? No, no, it's not a time of contention between the Father and the Son. It is evidence of Jesus' utter holiness and hatred for sin. Let this cup pass from me. I don't want to be separated from you. One author concludes it this way. Quote, He's not saying, God, I think you're wrong, but I'm going to let you win this time. No, he's saying, I trust you no matter what I'm feeling right now. I know that your desires are ultimately my desires. Do what we both know must be done. He endured the agony of the cross endured sin's weight of separation from the Father that he might bring many sons to glory. I lay my life down for the sheep. I conclude our time in the text with this poem regarding the Trinity. Meditate on it just for a moment with me as we hear a sinner's response to so great a redemption. O Father, I thank Thee that in fullness of grace Thou hast given me to Jesus to be His sheep, to be His jewel, to be His portion. O Jesus, I thank Thee that in fullness of grace Thou didst die for me, accepted me, espoused me, and bound Thyself to me. O Holy Spirit, I thank Thee that in fullness of grace Thou hast taught of me, Jesus exhibited Jesus to me and brought to me thy salvation, implanted faith 
deep within me, subdued my stubborn heart to thee, and made me one with Jesus forever. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you.